This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello and welcome to the Times Red Box podcast. I'm Carol Walker, in for Matt Chorley this Easter bank holiday. Coming up on today's show, we'll reflect on the signing of the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland 25 years ago. But first, it's 10 years since the death of Margaret Thatcher. I spoke to two titans of the Conservative Party, Michael Howard and Michael Forsyth, both now in the House of Lords. And I asked them first for their personal memories of the former Prime Minister. She was a very great prime minister who saved our country. Um, There were many uh, moments when uh, um, she was kind to me um, and some moments when she um, caught me out. I I well remember one moment when um, she asked me to come to her room uh, behind the speaker's chair in the House of Commons to go through a a bill which I had to take through. Uh, And I thought I'd mugged it up uh, pretty thoroughly beforehand um, she said to me, well, now, Michael, tell me exactly what the meaning of this footnote on page 53 of the uh, explanatory memorandum is. And I'm afraid I had absolutely no idea what the footnote on page 53 meant at all. A prime minister with a, a very uh, clear focus on all the important details. Uh, Lord Forsyth, what about you? Do you have a, a particular memory of the former prime minister? Uh, many memories. Uh, I mean, I think the, the thing she used to come and stay with us in Scotland and uh, you saw a side to her that the public didn't see. Um, she was actually a warm person, interested in gardens and the art and everything else. But she was driven. She was driven very much by uh, her desire to serve her country and by her firm beliefs. Um, during the passage of the Mastery Treaty, um, I was in John Major's uh, cabinet and she was holding drinks parties for backbenchers and telling them what a bad idea the Maastricht Treaty was. And uh, the Prime Minister was getting very irritated by this and asked me to go and talk to her and said, look, you know, we don't want to end up attacking her, but, I mean, this can't go on. So like a fool, I rang her up and said, look, can I come and talk to you about the Maastricht Treaty? Um, I arrived and uh, she had the Maastricht Treaty, which you may recall Ken Clark said he'd never really read, Uh, And it was completely annotated. And she said, now, which section of the treaty would you like to discuss? (laughs) And I said, well, it isn't really about the Maastricht Treaty. I'm just a bit worried that, you know, 
doing these drinks parties is going to get you into controversy and you you don't need that. At this point, there was a sort of thermonuclear explosion and I can remember her screaming at me, how dare you use that argument with me if you think I ever cared about me do you think we could possibly have achieved any of the things we did? And it was a um, a real learning thing that underlined her character, which was that she she didn't want to be loved, she wanted to be respected, and she always sought to do the right thing. And that is the key to success, in my view, in politics. Many politicians fall through the grating by attempting to be loved. She was certainly a, a formidable character. I remember as a very junior reporter having to uh, doorstep her, as we call it in the business, put a microphone under her nose, and it was um, it was an intimidating experience. Um, but she was also, of course, a hugely divisive figure. Um, I mean, Lord Howard, I, I guess her battles with the union, uh, the minor strike and so on, are one of the uh, issues on which she will be uh, most remembered. But I guess you have to also remember the context of the era in which she took power. You certainly do, because um, it was a time when um, our country, which when she came into office was widely regarded as the uh, sick man of Europe. Um, we were we were an object of, uh, of, of pity rather than anything else. And she saved us from all that. And in order to do that, she had to take some really tough decisions, which were of necessity controversial. Um, There was was no point in trying to build a consensus because no consensus was available. So she had to take these really tough decisions, which were very controversial, which led to huge opposition. Um, But really, had she not done that, we would have continued down the slithery path which we were on before she took over. Uh, Yeah, and that was just one of the many huge battles uh, that she fought. As you were saying, uh, Michael Forsyth, she was happy to take on people. She was more concerned about doing the right thing than being loved. But for all those, and many still in your party, who would laud her achievements, there are others um, who were vehemently opposed to what she did and what she was trying to achieve? Well, um, I'm, I'm not sure about that. I mean, in, in the post this morning, um, I, I got a, a letter and a, and a report um, from Somerville College, from the chairman, um, uh, from the uh, Baroness Royal, who was, as you know, uh, very close to Neil Kinnock and leader of the uh, Lords um, uh, when Labour were in power. And the, the trustees um, of the body that has been set up there called the Margaret Thatcher Scholarship Trust have enabled uh, 50 students with in very difficult circumstances to go there. And I was quite struck by what um, Baroness Royal uh, wrote this, this morning. It said, uh, taking a step back to look at the group of people, this is the group of people, there are 50 of them who've benefited from these scholarships, gives me a renewed appreciation for Lady Thatcher Whilst it's true that uh, there are many points of politics on which we would have disagreed, there can be few other people whose memory can forge such a connection between the leaders of today and the leaders of tomorrow. I mean, she was inspirational. I mean, one of those odd coincidences of history, the, the good relationship between, the strong relationship between her and Ronald Reagan, undoubtedly led 
uh, to the fall of the Berlin Wall and the liberation of people in Central and Eastern Europe, which um, Michael, Michael Howard, played such an important part in, in dealing with um, after that event. And I think, um, yeah, you can describe her as divisive, but I would say the divisive character in the miners' strike was Arthur Scargill, who refused to ballot his members. And there are a few people who would have had the courage and the determination uh, to face them down, um, which, you know, was so important for our country. And it's interesting, um, Lord Howard, Michael Forsyth was talking there about the letter and uh, the lessons uh, for, for the leaders of tomorrow uh, from Margaret Thatcher's day. I mean, there is no other Conservative leader, really, who has had such a an enduring influence on the party, um, and with with all due respect to your your own contribution in that role, um, and is still so considered with so much reverence by so many within your party. Well, of course that's true because great leaders like Margaret Thatcher don't come along every day. Um, what has been uh, our saving grace as a nation is that so often when we've been in a great crisis. Great leaders have come along. Uh, I think Margaret Thatcher was the peacetime equivalent of Winston Churchill, who mm. saved us in 1940 from uh, a terrible fate. Um, and in, when she came to office in 1979, um, we were in a mess as well. And it's been, uh, it's been our, our great saving as a nation that at times of great peril, we've been able to come up with exceptional leaders, but they don't come along every day. Um, Lord Forsyth, I know that you um, were a lifelong friend of Margaret Thatcher's and kept in touch with her after she left power. Uh, tell us about um, some of those final years, because you always felt with Baroness Thatcher that uh, she, she still somewhat regretted that she wasn't running the country. Well, I think, I mean, I think she felt um, betrayed by the way in which she left office. That, that is certainly true. Um, but in later years, uh, she was suffering from short-term memory losses and she would um, have periods uh, where she was unsure of what is happening around her and and one or two people like me uh, would, would support her and, and protect her because she was terrified of, of letting the side down. I mean, she she would come to the House of Lords. People loved to see her. Um, she wasn't going to vote because in, in the latter years she couldn't really um, uh, focus on on everything that was, was going on. But she felt she ought to go there and people loved her. And one day I said to her, you know, Margaret, you've saved our country. You've done our bit. You don't need to come to the House of Lords as often as you do. And uh, quite characteristically, she sort of turned on me and she said, Michael, when we were appointed to this house, it became our duty to turn up and participate fully. Now, how often are you here when I'm not here? She had this very strong driving sense of duty. And so um, even when she was not as strong and uh, was enfeebled, she still would talk about, now, what can we do to um, mobilise the party and help to win the next election? Or what are we going to do about this or that problem? Um, and even even when you know even when she used to come and stay in Scotland when, in a sort of relaxed way, um, the, we always had to be doing something. You couldn't you couldn't rest. Work was, <laughs> and I think a lot of this had to do with her, her Methodist background, um, uh, which um, certainly chimed with my Scottish Presbyterianism. And um, 
she was just a remarkable person. But she was also yeah. the side that people didn't see was a really caring person who uh, was interested in, in, in people, but also immensely practical uh, and immensely clear in the difference between right and wrong. And the big yeah. thing I think this changed, um, which she had, is her respect for Parliament, its institutions and its conventions. And okay. unfortunately, today, I think that has been uh, less the case um, with governments of all parties. Uh, let me just finally ask you, uh, Lord Howard, we've been through a fair few Conservative leaders since her day. Um, what lessons do you think there are for Rishi Sunak in Margaret Thatcher's premiership? I think um, Rishi Sunak appreciates the key quality which um, Michael Forsyth identified in, I think, his first contribution, which was the real importance of doing the right thing um, and putting that before any question of trying to do things that should make you popular. Um, you need, as a prime minister, to be uh, respected rather than loved. Um, and you need, above all, to be able to do the right thing, even when it is unpopular. Um, and that's the most important lesson. Um, I think um, Rishi Sunak um, has learned it, but he's uh, still in the relatively early period of, uh, of, of being prime minister. And um, we'll have to see how things pan out. That was Lord Michael Howard and Lord Michael Forsyth speaking to me 10 years on from the death of Margaret Thatcher. Coming up, we'll mark the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com this episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to Carol Walker. Now for our conversation with some of those involved in the negotiations that led to the signing of the Good Friday Agreement 25 years ago. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Well, today we are marking 25 years since the signing of the Good Friday Agreement, the landmark peace deal that ended so much of the violence in Northern Ireland. Good evening from Castle Buildings at Stormont outside Belfast on the day of a truly momentous agreement. 
promising a fundamental change in the political relationship between North and South and between Britain and Ireland. An agreement finally emerged after two years of talks and decades of violence and bloodshed. The principle of consent is absolute and is throughout the agreement. And the breakthrough is that that is now accepted by all North and South. Also, those who believe in a united Ireland can make that case now by persuasion, not violence or threats. My ultimate political aspiration remains the coming together of all the people of Ireland, achieved peacefully and by consent. I value deeply the close relationship between the Irish government and the British government. But I look forward equally to a new era of friendship and reconciliation between unionists and nationalists, in which each tradition can learn truly the value of the other. Well, you heard there RTE News reporting the story. The British Prime Minister Tony Blair and Irish Prime Minister Bertie Ahern announcing the deal. The agreement gave formal recognition to Northern Ireland's multiple communities, allowing residents to identify as British, Irish or both. It ended direct UK rule and set up a Northern Ireland legislature and government with power shared between unionists and nationalist parties. Well, we are going to be revisiting those historic negotiations, finding out what it was like to be inside the room with Mark Durkin, assistant to John Hume at the time, who led the Social Democratic and Labour Party and is widely regarded as one of the most important figures in the peace process. David Donoghue also joins us. He is a former Irish ambassador who was involved in the negotiations on behalf of the Irish government. And we'll find out what it was like reporting on this huge moment in Northern Ireland's history. Dennis Murray, former BBC correspondent, will join us to tell us how the night unfolded outside the castle buildings in Belfast. Well, a little earlier today, I spoke to Mark Durkin, who is uh, who was assistant to the SDLP leader, John Hume. And I started by asking him about the part he played in the drafting of the agreement. I was part of the SDLP negotiating team, along with other colleagues. I would have been working with John Hume and Seamus Mallon. Uh, at the talks, we had what we called a sort of a, a homework club, where a number of us would work on our papers, on our submissions, and on trying to maybe redraft things to take account of what we were hearing from other parties. So I was very much part of that uh, homework club that would have been subject to John and Seamus's approval, drafting and redrafting. Uh, in light of what we were hearing or indeed what we weren't hearing from other parties. Because people will think of the Good Friday Agreement as being primarily between Sinn Féin and the Unionists, but of course your party as a more centrist nationalist party was also a key part of this. Sinn Féin were refused to make any submissions in what was called Strand 1 of the talks. The negotiations were in three strands. Strand 1 was about issues and arrangements inside Northern Ireland. Strand 2 was about issues and arrangements on the island of Ireland, North and South. And Strand 3 was about British-Irish relations, East and West. Sinn Féin's position was they didn't put in any position on Strand 1. They were opposed to an assembly. They would have heckled us in the roundtable talks for even talking about the possible appointment of ministers and arrangements in uh, an assembly. So even a couple of weeks out from the agreement, that was still their position. Meanwhile, the Ulster Unionist Party were agreeing to an assembly, but they didn't want ministers to be in that assembly. Uh, They wanted to just simply operate by a loose 
committee structure and then that would avoid the need for a ministerial body north-south. So we had a lot of ground to make up in those negotiations and the fact is the outcome, the the three-strand structures that were in the outcome of the agreement uh, were very much uh, derived from the SDLP uh, blueprint which was for elective inclusion People could be included in government if they wanted to opt in according to their mandate in the North. Nobody was going to be involuntarily uh, excluded. There would be uh, North-South arrangements whereby we could cooperate and there would be new British-Irish arrangements. It wouldn't just involve the British and Irish governments, but was going to involve the new devolved uh, arrangements in Scotland and Wales as well as in Northern Ireland. And of course, this was all happening against the backdrop of more than 30 years of appalling violence in Northern Ireland. I mean, I remember reporting on some of it myself. And so what was it like when you got through all those incredibly complex negotiations and knowing how much was at stake and the agreement was finally signed? Well, violence was continuing even in the early months of 1998. So while we had stated ceasefires uh, from some armed groups, the fact is a group like the Loyalist Volunteer Force was killing people in the early months of 1998. The continuity IRA were mounting uh, bomb attacks and other violent uh, attempts. So while we were trying to negotiate inside uh, castle buildings. The fact is that violence was continuing, and I can remember, you, you know, one awful incident in early March was in the little village of Points Pass, and two friends, Philip Allen and Damien Trainer, uh, one Protestant, one a Catholic, were shot dead by uh, the LVF. And I can remember in the talks the following morning saying that the stories we were hearing on the media about the wonderful friendship of those two men could be a parable for the sort of society we could create if we could reach uh, an agreement. And I can remember just how the parties, the other parties around the table, were very committed. We were still very far apart from what our institutional models were and what our ideas about rights and equality uh, were. There was a shared determination that violence wasn't going to get the last word, uh, that dialogue had to have the last word. And of course, under our agreement, the last word was going to lie with the people north and south because any agreement was going to have to be mandated in a referendum. It must have been quite an emotional moment, though, when that agreement was signed, albeit not everything was resolved, but it was a huge moment, wasn't it? It was emotion, uh, elation, also exhaustion, uh, because obviously we had been working round the clock, trying to put together the different parts of the agreement. And, you know, it was an odd sort of negotiation because while it was meant to be inclusive, a lot of the things didn't happen with everybody all around the table at one time, although those conversations had helped. Uh, We were in a situation where I suppose everybody was behind a different pillar on on different things uh, because some of the stuff, obviously, around prisoners and decommissioning was... Uh, centering more on conversations between the government and Sinn Féin. And what was the key factor that actually managed to bring everyone to that point where they felt they could put their signatures to it? You can have years of mutual engagement, and we had that in those talks, but there comes a time when particularly where a deadline has been usefully set, you realise there has to be mutual adjustment, that you can keep arguing your position and arguing against somebody else's position, but if we're going to get an agreement that has to go to a referendum and be supported in Northern Ireland and throughout the island, you have to be realistic about what other parties uh, are prepared to support and commit to. As we mark 25 years since that moment, 
And we hear these warnings of public disorder. We've had the incidents, which I'm sure you're well aware of. Uh, And we've, of course, still got the stalemate in Northern Ireland. Um, I mean, what do you make of that situation that we're in now? Well, it's hugely uh, difficult. We need to basically marshal our democratic will and a sense of integrity in defying those threats of violence. We need to get over the different problems that are there, get the institutions that were mandated by the people uh, back up and running. And that's where we should be arguing our political uh, differences. But more importantly, we should be finding common cause around the priorities uh, that matter to people. We have an awful lot to be doing together and we shouldn't be standing apart outside of democratic institutions. Well, that was Mark Durkin of the SDLP speaking to me a little earlier. Um, Let's talk to David Donoghue. He's a former Irish ambassador to countries including Russia and Germany and was a key figure in the Irish government's negotiating team uh, throughout the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, David, a very good morning. Good morning. Um, Well, it's good, really good to have you with us. Um, Just tell us what it was like. I mean, was there a moment when you realised that a breakthrough was possible? Well, in fact, um, Carol, Mark has uh, captured a lot of the the atmosphere uh, of the last year. So, yes, there was a a moment. I mean, uh, the way I would sum it up is that we achieved uh, a breakthrough on the north-south arrangements, um, the so-called Strand 2, around midnight on that uh, Thursday night. We were up all night, uh, as you can imagine. And within an hour or two of that, as Mark will remember very well, uh, there was a Strand 1 breakthrough. So those were two key parts of the jigsaw. Later in the evening uh, or in the night, uh, there was a a breakthrough on prisoners. But I suppose round about uh, 7 or 8 a.m. on Friday morning, on Good Friday, um, we all began to sense that an agreement was uh, was coming. Um, later on, there was a crisis in the course of the Friday, and it had to do with the Unionists uh, and uh, uh, a reluctance to contemplate um, uh, Sinn Féin ministers before decommissioning of weapons uh, began and for various reasons that was never going to command consensus uh, at least a, uh, there was never going to be a consensus on on that issue so yeah. it, was, it was resolved by a letter from the Prime Minister but by, um, by the afternoon then we finally did have a green light. And just take us through what it was like for you at that moment. I I don't know if you were there when the agreement was actually signed and we heard those words from the two prime minister. It it must have been quite an emotional moment. It it was. I was there. In fact, um, I mean, there are famous uh, shots of the of the the plenary chamber were all crowded in. Um, the simplicity of it, Carol, is something that I will always remember, that George Mitchell just simply asked each leader to confirm more or less yay or nay. And basically all of them did that. I mean, there were no prevarications really that, OK, there was a technical thing about one party needing to needing to have um, uh, ratification by its, uh, uh, it, 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 its leadership. But effectively, each leader said yes. And that the simplicity of that was something that I had not expected. Yes, there was great emotion, sense of relief, uh, exhaustion, uh, as Mark has has mentioned, um, sense of catharsis, really, that after three or four days of intense negotiation, you could argue even three weeks, that we had reached this moment against all expectations. 
because the crisis earlier on the Friday had led many of us to believe that this latest effort would collapse. So it was against all of our expectations that at about four o'clock that afternoon, George Mitchell rang everybody and said, you won't believe it, but uh, David Trimble has just come into my room and is ready to do the business. A few minutes later, we were in the plenary chamber. And as I say, each leader gave a very simple yes Uh, Quite extraordinary. And of course, you talked about the crisis in the final few uh, days, hours and weeks, but it was a process that had been begun years earlier with John Major. And it did transform the political situation in Northern Ireland, but it didn't end the violence completely, did it? I mean, there was a long process um, of things like um, what was going to happen to weapons and so on. And we're hearing today those very specific warnings from the police in Northern Ireland uh, of possible violence. I mean, when you think back to what you helped to achieve back then and the situation that we have now, what are your thoughts? Well, I would make a distinction, Carol. I mean, I'm not an expert on the, the current security situation in, in, in Northern Ireland, but my sense is that this is dissident uh, Republicans who are... Um, uh, signaling or making threats of one kind or another the key thing in the uh, in the 90s was that the ira um, reached a decision to uh, stop its campaign in the first in 1994 then there was a relapse into violence as you remember with the canary wharf bomb sometime later and then finally uh, the ceasefire of um, the summer of 1997 so the, if you like, the the main campaign on the Republican side, uh, which had dominated the troubles, was over as of um, uh, the summer of 1997. So I'm not in any sense... Um, downgrading the threats that we've had since uh, and of course the OMAD bomb was the in the summer of 98 was the worst single atrocity for the entire troubles but the the primary republican paramilitary campaign um, was over as of the summer of 1997. And just finally and briefly if you could David um what do you make of the continuing political stalemate in Northern Ireland? Still no government, still no devolved uh, assembly or parliament. Um, it is, of course, uh, disappointing. Uh, I mean, you know, we in, in Dublin would have greatly welcomed the agreement reached recently between the UK and the EU. Um, and, and we obviously see that as a basis on which um, uh, the DUP could enter the uh, the, the, the institutions, uh, re-enter, or at least allow the institutions to function. So it is disappointing. On the other hand, you know, one would like to think that they will um, uh, carry out uh, the reflection they're talking about and carry it out reasonably, reasonably soon. Uh, and one would like to think that there could be a decision in due course okay. to uh, restore the institutions. Uh, David Donoghue, uh, a former Irish ambassador who was part of that Irish government negotiating team, uh, at the Good Friday Agreement. Really good to speak to you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Karen. We are reflecting on the signing of the Good Friday Agreement 25 years ago. A day like today, I mean, it's not a day for sort of sound bites, really. Um, we can leave those at home, but I feel the, I feel the hand of history upon our shoulder. 
Well, that was the British Prime Minister, Tony Blair, uh, with one of the uh, classic sound bites of our time. Uh, we can talk now to Dennis Murray. He was the BBC's Ireland correspondent at the time of the Good Friday Agreement, um, covered every moment in the twists and turns of the negotiations which led to the signing. Dennis, you followed this all the way through the night, all the way through the day. We have an agreement on paper. The critical question, of course, is will it be accepted out there on the ground in the different communities? Well, the process hasn't ended quite in the way I think that the Prime Ministers and the other parties would have wanted. I think they would have much preferred the Ulster Unionists to sign up to it wholeheartedly. Uh, I think this is qualitatively different to anything we've seen before. What we've just witnessed isn't just history, it's the impossible. I talked to Seamus Mallon a couple of weeks ago after those horrible murders in his constituency, and he said, I said to him, this is impossible, isn't it? He said, yes, it is, but Dennis, we have to do it. That's where the participants have pulled off this afternoon. Well, Dennis Murray joins us now. Good morning to you, Dennis. Well, now's not the time for sound bites, Carol. <laughs> I mean, when you hear yourself reporting, I mean, what goes through your mind when you look back to that historic agreement, the signing of it? And, and I'm sure you'd had many um, sleepless nights uh, covering the negotiations and reporting on them. Well, that one in particular, I do know I have no recollection. I, I I was quite proud of the BBC that day because all four television channels went live uh, to it because they caught the sense of history uh, that it had. It was quite a decision to take to throw all four channels at it. But anyway, I'd forgotten that conversation with Seamus Mallon. Now, when you were talking to Mark Durkin, he mentioned the murder of the two lads in the little village called Points Pass. And that's the murder Seamus Mallon and I were talking about. And that that had a longer lasting significance because part of the village was in Seamus Mallon's constituency and part of it was in David Trimble's constituency, the Ulster Unionist leader. And they arrived in the village at more or less the same time to visit the relatives. And they went in to meet the bereaved relatives together. And I found out later, in fact, it was Mark Durkin who told me that that day they had the idea of the joint office of the, 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 that there would be two uh, effectively first ministers joined at the hip, which they eventually called first and deputy first ministers. And the idea came from that. And the, the odd thing about it was that uh, incidents of violence had been used as reasons not to talk. Um, if if somebody carried out a murder or an explosion or an atrocity or an attack or whatever, it was a handy excuse for the side that felt attacked to say, no, we can't talk to you now. And there were so what, many what, ups and downs in the negotiations, right, right up. Sorry, um, Dennis, I mean, there were so many ups and downs yeah. we were hearing right up to the last moment. But um, when you were there covering this, having gone through all of that, and of course, yeah. covering night after night, some of the appalling atrocities of the Troubles. I, I mean, what was it like for you when you then witnessed the signing of the historic agreement? Uh, well, it, it was very hard not to be elated, but just very quickly to finish that point, violence in the later stages of the process just made the politicians all the more determined to keep going uh, till they could get there. But, I mean, there was, there was still that horrible standoff at uh, over an orange march in Drumcree in County Armagh, which was still going on every summer at that stage. 
Uh, and later that same year, you had the OMA bombing, uh, which was uh, certainly in terms of numbers, the worst uh, incident in the whole history of the Troubles, which was carried out by dissident Republicans who are, who are still at it, as in this warning from the, the chief constable. Um, but it was, um, I, I actually thought of saying this and I thought, no, don't. The only thing that was missing was someone like Bishop Tutu to say, whoopee, whoopee, you know. But if you remember the atmosphere of the time, the world was getting to be a better place. You know, there'd been peace talks about the former Yugoslavia. There'd been a peace deal in the Middle East. Uh, the old Soviet Union had collapsed. The Berlin Wall had come down. And probably because Northern Ireland was the most televised conflict for the previous 30 odd years. So the whole world uh, wished the thing well. And it had an impetus because the president of the time, Bill Clinton, was involved. Uh, in fact, he made a phone call late in the day to the Ulster Unionists who were having very serious doubts about the agreement on Good Friday afternoon. And he just said, how can I help David? And he helped to get the thing over the line. So and and when an you were there at that moment, sorry, Dennis, because um, we have a huge amount of time left. I'm sure you know what it's yeah, like yeah. having been reporting on news for so long. But just having been there, covered all that terrible violence, covered so many of the complicated negotiations that we've been hearing about. I mean, did you get this sense that this really was a transformational moment? As, as you've clearly pointed out, the, the yes. violence didn't end there, but yes, it was a huge yeah. moment. Yes, it was. And I, I stand over that to this day, along with the signing of the treaty in 1921, which created the independent Irish Free State, as it then was, and created Northern Ireland. The Good Friday Agreement is the most important political development and the governance of these islands in the 20th century. Um, it, 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 will, it will stand the test of time too. The template will still be going on. I suspect the current system is going to have to be amended if it's to work in the future. They're going to have to find a way, instead of having first and deputy first minister, for instance, they could say joint first minister. Uh, and there needs to be a mechanism in the assembly where no longer can one party collapse it absolutely. If one party, even a very big one, says uh, we want to walk out of the executive you can't collapse the assembly that's up to you you're now your electors aren't represented in the executive that's your your decision but we're going to keep on governing because you can't go on with this uh, situation where the things only run for a third i think for a third of its lifetime it's been collapsed that can't go on so that'll have to change but the template will remain uh, i think for a very long time indeed just finally what do you make of those latest warnings even 25 years on from that agreement of possible terror attacks directed at northern ireland police that same night i was asked the night of the agreement i was asked does this mean the end of the troubles? And I said, no, it doesn't. It'll take a while for them to wind down. But I said also that you cannot predict, you could not say that in 20 or 30 years time, there won't be a generation of either Republicans or loyalists who will say we got conned rotten in 1998. And there's a lot of unease and some rather dark murmurings from the loyalist paramilitaries at the moment. And you still have these dissident Republicans who attempted to murder a police officer a few weeks ago and did murder the young journalist Lyra McKee. And the thing, nobody wants these people. The loyalist paramilitaries, a large part of them, they're drug dealers. 
on the Republican side. Nobody wants them. And if you got hold of one of these dissident Republicans and said, what do you hope to achieve by this? They couldn't tell you. They, it's okay. all completely pointless and nobody wants them. That does not mean, however, that there still won't be people who might die here. And what might provoke that is a political vacuum. So the sooner that assembly comes back, the better. Thanks so much for listening to the Times Red Box podcast. That's all for now. I'll be back with you on Monday. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.